0: Imagine if you went into work tomorrow morning and there was a memo sitting on your desk and it said, congratulations, you just got a bonus of $10,000. Go to accounting and pick it up. Good day? Yeah, great day, right? Throughout the week, you also get some other memos. One of them says, um, I've promoted you to manager and I'd like your first action to be the firing of your former boss. Yeah. People are like, this is the best sermon ever. No. <laughs> or um I want you to go to ask your coworker in the cubicle next to you what you can do to help them and do their job for them today. At that point you might start to wonder what's going on. Now now these would be great memos to get, but it depends on who's sending them, right? If those are from your boss or the president of the company, then hey, go get the $10,000, take your pastor to lunch and you're good. <laughs> but then you find out through some laughter and snickers that your coworker next to you is the one sending the memos. Does that change the message? Yeah. As you go to your boss and fire him. As you go to accounting and demand $10,000. Yeah, it completely changes the message because the message is dependent on who sent it, on the authenticity of who sent it, on the the ability or the, the authority of who sent it. Today, as we talk about the canon of the Bible, we want to go to that issue. How do we know that the books that are in the Bible are the books that should be in the Bible? Are these the books written by God? We've talked about inspiration, but then did the right books get collected into these 66 books That are in the Bible. And so we want to explore that today again to give us confidence. But more than that today, I want us to begin to see the thread of how the Holy Spirit, how God through the Holy Spirit, is working through His Word and superintending the creation of His Word, the transmission of His Word, and the Word's work within us. We've been starting each Sunday with a section of Psalm 119. And so I'd like to do the same. We have Psalm 119. I'd like to look at verses 33 through 40 today. And if you're wondering which, which parts to concentrate on, I believe they're colored. That's a hint. Um, catch the theme that is in this stanza about God's Word. Let's read together, starting with verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness give me life. Go ahead and leave that up there for a little bit, Jeremiah. I want to look at some of the things. What is the theme you see in, in the, the highlighted words? Who's doing the work? God is doing the work and in this stanza it's interesting because he talks about walking with God following God's precepts he talks a lot about delighting loving God's word and enjoying God's word but in every case he's asking God to do the work and just think about the verses that are on the screen teach me O Lord the way of your statutes and I will keep it to the end The implication there is without Him teaching us through His Holy Spirit, we will have trouble understanding what those commands are. We need the Holy Spirit to teach us. Verse 34, Give me understanding that I may keep Your law and observe it with my whole heart. Give me understanding. Help me to understand. Help me to realize exactly what Your Word is saying. You know, sometimes we read it, and I don't know if you've ever gone to it and read the same verse like five times, and you're like, I still am not sure what that word means or what that verse means. What the psalmist here is reminding us is God's the one that gives understanding. And so he starts with, with a prayer or he, he reminds us to be praying that God will give us understanding. We can't have that understanding on our own. I don't care how much Bible college you have, how much seminary, how many Alistair Begg sermons you've listened to. You cannot understand the the breadth of God's Word without the Holy Spirit working in your heart. Without God revealing that. Do you see the beauty of this this psalm? Give me understanding. Then, Then I can keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. I can be wholehearted when God helps me understand it. Lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. And again, God's the one enabling through His Holy Spirit 36, I, I love 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. And the idea there is, Lord, help me desire your word. Help me crave it. Help me be in it every day. Anyone ever have trouble being in God's word every day? Have you thought about why? Why? Because that's where Satan's going to attack, and he's going to to give us alternatives. He's going to, you know, he mentions selfish gain here. In the next verse, he'll mention worthless things. Satan will do anything he can to get us to distracted from God's word, right? And the psalmist is saying, "God, I need you to to help me love God's word, to incline my heart to God's word." I'm all for accountability. I'm all for apps that remind you every day to read God's word. Any tools that are possible. But ultimately, those tools fail unless we're asking God to help us be in His Word. And, and and so I want us to see the theme of this passage. It's God at work. It's His Holy Spirit at work. In 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. So help me not to get distracted. Help me not to have things that, that supplant God's Word and become more important than God's Word. Give me life in your ways confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. And that's an interesting verse because it's asking God to confirm that this is true. To ensure in us that these are God's very words. And this is what we've been talking about. And we're going to go on on a little bit off that verse today. How did God confirm that through His Holy Spirit? And we'll continue to look at that. But again, that you may be feared. Being in God's Word is part of developing... A fear of God. A healthy fear of God. A love for God. An awe of God. Where we come to Him and say, You are my God and I want to serve You. I want to be in Your Word. I love You. That comes from God's work in our lives. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for Your rules are good. And this this whole passage is, is showing that God, through the Holy Spirit, is superintending the work of His Word. Right? God is the one he, has, he, through the Holy Spirit, inspired God's Word. He wrote it, made sure we have God's very words. Today we're going to look at through the Holy Spirit. He transmitted God's Word, made sure that what we have is reliable. But he doesn't stop the process there. He's in charge of the whole process, and he makes sure it burns in our hearts and our souls and changes our lives. My passion that I hope we catch from today, even though we'll look at some technical things, but from, from this passage and some of the other passages we'll look at, my passion is that God wants us to wholeheartedly love Him and His Word. And, and He will do everything in His power to make that happen if we let Him. If we come to Him and say, incline my heart, turn my eyes, confirm your truths, give me understanding. And so I'd like to stop here and pray and pray that God's spirit will work through his word Lord God I pray that your spirit would be working this morning that it wouldn't be some carefully contrived words or it wouldn't be some some great facts but that your Holy Spirit would take your word and burn that in our hearts Lord that you would give us understanding that You would teach us, Lord, then that You would lead us into how to walk with You this week, that You would incline our hearts to, to want this, to desire this, to crave Your Word, that You would confirm the truth of it in our hearts, that You would turn our eyes from anything else that's worthless, that is distracting from Your Word. Lord, that we would be a people at Village Bible Church that are dedicated to reading Your Word and being in Your Word. Lord, open it, open our eyes to it today in your name. Amen. So as we look at God to confirm his word today, we want to continue our theme of how do we know that the Bible is true? How do we know that it's reliable? And we want God to be the one in charge of this. We want to be looking for the Holy Spirit to direct this. And so today we're going to talk about the topic. How do we know that the 66 books here are actually supposed to be here? Anyone watch The Da Vinci Code or read The Da Vinci Code? One of the, the worst pieces of fiction ever. They didn't even do their research right. Okay, then I'm <laughs> biasing that a little bit. <laughs> but one of the assertions that they made that I heard over and over, and this has been a while ago, but especially at the time, that I heard over and over was the, the, the book said, the Bible is just simply a contrived book of writings about 400, 500 years after the fact from men who were trying to manipulate and control other people. And and that was the theme of this book. And I started hearing that from secular sources, from non-Christians. Okay, so how do you know the Bible's true? Is that true, that it was just made up by the church four or five hundred years later? How can that be God's Word? You know, one student said, yeah, sure I know about the books of the Bible. The leaders got together in a council, decided which books best helped them, and then forced the followers to accept them. That's about as far from the truth as you can get. But that's what that's what the book said, that's what the movie said, so it must be true. That was the, the YouTube of the day, I guess. But the problem is that's not true. And that's not what happened. And so how do we answer that? Because people you're talking to at work, people that you're talking to in your neighborhood, they have this mindset, and we talked about this through this whole series, that the Bible is just a bunch of fables. It's just a bunch of made-up stories. And, and with, with ideas like this, that it was done with a nefarious intent, that it's to control people, to force people to follow. And so we want to know how do we answer this? How do we know that this is what God wanted us to have? Now now keep in mind they're saying councils in, in late 300s, 400s A.D. We know that from, from writings earlier than that that have been discovered that the Bible in almost its complete form was already in circulation in the church 300 years before that. And the councils were simply ratifying what already was the case. But that's not good enough. We want better answers than that. And so really the topic of what books should be in there, it's called, What is the Canon? Now some of you, when I say canon, you're already thinking some big metal tube and little balls that come out of it. And some of you that play Fortnite are like, yeah, those are new weapons in Fortnite. Um, sorry, that's, that's to all our junior high and high schoolers that are playing that. But the canon it has one in, not two. The canon is simply those books that are officially accept, the officially accepted list of books in the Bible the books that are officially accepted by the, the early church as Scripture, as to be part of God's Word. The word canon was Greek for standard or rod. And, and it represented that they had a certain standard that books of the Bible had to meet to be considered part of the canon or part of the list. It wasn't just, let's throw a, throw a dice, and if it's a six, that book's in. Woohoo! No, it was a, it was an actual standard. Much like when we talked about Super Bowl Sunday, the yard, and and that we have a yard standard. If I was to take a measuring tape and any of your measuring tapes at home, your yard would be a yard. It's a standard. They would all be the same. That's what the word canon means, is that there was a standard for how do we pick the books that are in God's Word. Not we, but how did the early church do this? And now it's referred to the 66 books that are in God's Word. And if you have Catholic friends, you'll hear them talk about the Apocrypha or some extra books. And there's an Old Testament Apocrypha, a New Testament Apocrypha, additional books that some people believe should be in there. But we're going to find that they didn't pass the, the standard or the canon of the early church, and so they weren't included. Before we get into all the details of this, though, and, and this is just vital for me this morning that we... we not just get mired in the weeds and all the details we could go through all kinds of councils and dates of this and that i want to step back and see the bigger picture that we already saw in the passage of psalms that that god is the one that is superintending this process god has always been at work through his holy spirit to ensure the truth and preserve the content of his word god has always been at work through the Holy Spirit, to ensure the truth of and preserve the content of His Word. This isn't a new thing. This is something that God has always been part of. And what He's doing with the early church here, and this is the remember this in your notes. I know I did two things out of order, but live with me. The remember this in your notes is the church was not deciding what was Scripture, but they were discovering what is Scripture. And that's a really important distinction. The church was not deciding what was scripture. They were discovering what is scripture. So the church didn't go through this test and poof, 1st Thessalonians became scripture. No, 1st Thessalonians was always scripture and these tests or these requirements were, were God revealing that it was scripture and so it should be included. And I've told a story before of Christmas time at our house. And at Christmas time, I have a brother and sister and, and myself, and we were fairly inquisitive young young people. And so the gifts under the tree, our family tradition was we'd put the gifts under the tree pretty early. And what would happen is my brother especially, I won't throw you under the bus, <laughs> my my brother especially would go under the tree and he could figure out every single gift under the tree. And then on Christmas morning, he'd be like, oh, that's this. We open it, and we're like, okay, you're sort of ruining it. Oh, that's this. And mom and dad are like, come on. And, and, and so, so this became, he, he could do this and he's shaking it and I don't know if there was any opening and rewrapping, I doubt it, but somehow he did this and maybe, maybe we were part of it. And so what happened is as, as years went on, there stopped being name tags on the gifts. Which sort of made it harder. It was hard to know who it was to, right? And, and and there were these little numbers, and and somehow these numbers corresponded to our names, and I'm a math guy, so I'm like figuring out the formula and figuring out the code, only to find out there was no formula or code. It was just a little chart with random numbers for Ron, and random numbers for Karen, and random numbers for Kin. And so on Christmas morning, mom and dad got their little chart out, and we'd say, okay, number 356. Oh, that that's for Karen and we discovered whose gift it was and we hope they got it right because i didn't want to open a girl's gift i mean that just um they got it right but we were discovering that morning we were discovering who the gift was for we were discovering the the content of the gift but also the the purpose of the gift the the canon is a lot like that that gift always was for me or that gift always was for karen or, or my brother And we were discovering in the the canon, when God inspired His Word, it always was Scripture. Okay, so the church didn't somehow give it some special sacred status. It always was Scripture. The early church was trying through the Holy Spirit to say, okay, God, tell us which ones are Your Word. And they were discovering which ones were God's gift to His church. Because there were a lot of things written. I don't know if you know that there were a lot of things written that Paul even refers to other letters that he wrote to some of these churches that aren't in the that aren't in the bible they aren't in the canon because they didn't fit the test so that, and god didn't reveal through his holy spirit that these were scripture and so we want to be confident that the holy spirit was directing this process i mean i mean really if the holy spirit is able to inspire a book and have it be God's very words, do you think he's also able to make sure it gets included in the Bible and presented to us? Do you think he's then also able to make sure that it touches our lives and changes us? We've got to have a bigger view of the Holy Spirit and what he's doing. And yeah, I can give all kinds of facts that give us more confidence, but ultimately, my confidence this morning is that the Holy Spirit is at work and doing his job. And 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 that he can work through these men who were diligently praying and seeking him and show them that through these standards, this is God's word. It'd be like if if my wife makes a, a meal for our family and she does all the the shopping for it, all the preparation, has this beautiful meal, but then she just doesn't have the capacity to put it on the table. You'd be like, you're nuts. Of course she can take it from the kitchen to the table. It's 10 feet but so many times we can think, oh oh yeah, and I've heard people say, oh yeah, I'm sure Scripture was inspired by God, but man put it together. No, no, the Holy Spirit is perfectly capable of presenting the right meal for us and presenting the right food. And so we've talked about Second Peter 1.21. We talked about this in inspiration. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And you see we see the Holy Spirit was part of inspiration and we get just a taste of the process. They're carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is moving them to the right choices, to the right decisions, to the right words because He is superintending and guiding the process. Scripture is God's divine gift to us. It's amazing. And so He made sure we got it. He made sure we got the right word. And He is able. But not only does the Holy Spirit work in inspiration, He ensures the truth of what God has revealed and that we have what God has revealed. Turn to John 14. We'll look at John 14 and John 16 in this portion this morning. John 14 and John 16. And if you don't have a, a Bible, there's a black hardback Bible right under the seats right around you. I encourage you to take that. If you don't have one at home, take that home with you. Because um, especially today in the notes, there's a lot of other verses you can look up. Um, this week for part of your quiet time. But John 14, verse 25. And the setting here is Jesus is preparing His disciples that He's going to leave. He knows He's going to die and, and, and resurrection in three days, but then He knows He's going to ascend into heaven and these disciples are going to be left here to carry on His work, to carry on His mission. And so we have His words to them and His prayer for them as he prepares them for his departure. And and what is amazing about these passages is part of his preparation is he's not really going to leave them alone. He's going to leave them the Holy Spirit. But I want to catch some of what the Holy Spirit does here, some of the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about this more after the, the series on James. But in John 14, verse 25, we'll start with 25 through 27 there. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. We'll stop there for a moment. What do you see already? You see Jesus' heart for His disciples. And then he's speaking to the 12 here, but this is his heart for all his disciples because we know that this gift of the Holy Spirit is for all believers, for anyone who comes, who repents and comes to a saving knowledge of Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells us. And we see this promise from Jesus. These things I've spoken to you while I'm with you. The helper, the, the paracletos, that will come alongside, that will help, that will mediate, the one that is with us, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. And, and the, the work of the Holy Spirit here that Jesus is mentioning is the ability to teach, the ability to bring to remembrance all that Jesus has said. These are the men who are going to write down the words of Christ. Jesus never wrote a gospel. He, He never wrote a scroll and, but the, His followers then were tasked with doing that and Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit's going to help you do that. The Holy Spirit in two things, he mentions, he's going to teach you all things, so he continues to work in our hearts to teach us the truths of God and to bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And it's, it's, it's a reminder that the Holy Spirit is supervising and, and working through the entire process teaching you all things, bringing to remembrance what I have said, that not only deals with the creation of scripture, which it definitely includes, but these were some of the same men that were deciding what books should be in the Bible. Do you think the Holy Spirit could give them that truth if they sought him? And, and, And I think that's part of the promise of this verse is they are now Part, Jesus is handing off the responsibility for the truths that He has taught, for the truths that are the foundation of the church, that are foundation of the New Testament. And He said, but it's not really you. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus has been teaching and now the Holy Spirit will teach and He will take care of these two things. And then I love including verse 27 in there. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be, be afraid. And Jesus is reminding them that through this, through trusting the Holy Spirit, because they'll have the Holy Spirit with them, they, they can rest easy. They can have peace that God is superintending His Word. For them, they can have peace that even through difficulties and the persecution coming, the Holy Spirit is still with them and the Holy Spirit is still working village that same holy spirit lives in us That we saying that this morning that same holy spirit if we've repented and come to christ that same holy spirit is promised throughout the new testament to be alive in us to live in us to help us understand scripture to help us deal with life to bring us comfort that's why we can say peace that's why jesus could say i'm leaving you in peace i know I'm, i know i'm leaving and it's going to be hard but you can have peace because the Holy Spirit will still be at work in you. And so we see Jesus reminding them the Holy Spirit's part of this process of truth, part of this process of, of creating God's Word, which is our, our record of the truth and the revelation of God. Turn over to, to John 16. John 16, and we'll look at a couple verses there, verses 13 and 14. And in this section, Jesus is talking to His disciples again, preparing them for His departure. And in verse 12, He's just said, you know, there's some things I can't tell you yet because you couldn't handle it. They would just be too much for you to understand. And so He says that in 12. And then we get to verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, what's the name of the Holy Spirit there? Spirit of truth. When we looked at the names of God, we looked at that as one of the names for the Holy Spirit. And Jesus gives him this name. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will take the knowledge, the truth that Jesus has, that he showed and that he lived, and he will declare it to His followers, to His disciples. And those disciples are the ones that had the authority to write most of the New Testament, to approve which books are part of our New Testament. And this is the Holy Spirit working through these men of God. Not perfect men. Not men that we should worship or pray to, but men who were taught by Jesus who had the authority given to them by Jesus and then given the Holy Spirit to make sure they got it right. This is an amazing truth about the Holy Spirit. God Himself, through the Holy Spirit, guided the process. Through the hands of fallen man, but He didn't leave it to chance, He was guiding the process. That village is why we have confidence in God's Word. That's the ultimate confidence we have. That the Holy Spirit is the one guiding it. This is why Jesus could say in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Do you know why he could say that? Because the Holy Spirit is making sure his words won't pass away. The Holy Spirit will make sure that we got the right books. Because if these aren't the right books, his words have passed away and Jesus lied. Trust and be confident in the Holy Spirit. That confidence is essential for us to be able to read God's word and have it impact us. You know, back to the memo thing. If you had gotten those three memos and then found out they were a coworker that wrote them to you, how would you approach the next memo you got? With a fair bit of skepticism. Rightfully so. And, and that, that lack of confidence affects how you view the truth of that next memo. And so when we come to God's word, our confidence that the Holy Spirit has been at work and is still at work in us and still teaching us and enlightening us, that confidence lets us take this as the very words of God and treat it as such. And so that's the foundation that this morning is based on. Where I want to go from here is then to talk about, okay, what are some of the qualifications that the early church fathers and the apostles used to decide what should be in God's word? And and it's okay to look at these things as long as these aren't the extent of our foundation. Foundation is the Holy Spirit. These are evidences that help us counter some of the lies that we're going to hear in culture. So what qualifications? And, and I guess a good place to start is what qualifications would you use if you were discovering what was scripture? What qualifications would you use if someone came with a new scroll that, that just they found last year somewhere, I don't know where, and they're like, this should be included in the Bible? What qualifications would we use? Give me some ideas. Continuity. Continuity. Yeah, does it fit the rest of Scripture? Is, 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 it, is it true in regards to the rest of Scripture? Good, that's a great one. Who wrote it and where did their authority come from? I wrote it. (laughs) That sort of destroys it right there. (laughs) Everyone's like, okay, that has no authority for God. And, And you're right, because I'm not an apostle. I didn't walk with Jesus. I hope I'm walking with Jesus, but physically. I wasn't here on this planet with him during his life. And so who wrote it and by what authority is huge. It's a huge question anything else does it claim to be scripture scripture? okay does it have any thus saith the lord or or thus says the lord in today's english (laughs) i grew up with king james Um, does it affirm other scripture and claim that other books are scripture these are a few tests let me give you five and, and, and we don't know which tests exactly they used, but from the writings of the early church and from looking at several of the writings, it looks like these five were definitely the key ones or part of the process. They may have had more, but these five were huge in, in deciding, okay, which books did God write and, and make scripture and discovering which books were scripture. The first one was, was it written by someone with God-given authority? Was it written by someone with God-given authority? Does it have apostolic or prophetic authority? In the Old Testament, we have prophetic authority, those men that the Holy Spirit came upon and they prophesied, thus says the Lord. And in the New Testament, the apostles who walked with Jesus, who Jesus taught and who were tasked with carrying on the words of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. So was it written by someone with God-given authority? Joe Blow didn't write a book in the Bible. These all have ties to the authority of Jesus Christ or God's authority and somehow are connected. So in the New Testament, was it written by apostle or closely connected to one of the apostles and approved by the apostles? Okay? In the Old Testament, did the apostles accept it? Did Jesus accept it? Was it considered Scripture and looking at the claims there and some of the other things? An apostle is simply one who is sent by God. And, and we have the twelve apostles that, that were with Jesus that he specifically tasked with, he specifically sent with authority and they, and an apostle carried the authority of the sender. And and think about this logically for a minute. Some would say, well, why did they get to choose? What's so special about those twelve? I could choose. I'm pretty smart. In fact, sometimes we fall into this idea that, um, that time gives intelligence that somehow we're we're a lot smarter today than 2000 years ago have you watched the news <laughs> but who else really who else should be an authority someone that hasn't walked with jesus someone that hasn't listened to him someone that didn't live 3 years of their life following every step and hearing every teaching and and, and so so really the apostles, especially for the New Testament, would be the most logical choice to make these, these decisions. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. He says, so, that, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So he's talking about when we accept Christ, we come into the church, we come into the household of God, we're adopted as family. That's why we talk about church family here so much. We're adopted as family. But then verse 20, Ephesians 2.20, that church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so in Scripture, we see that Jesus' plan was he would be the cornerstone, and then from that, the prophets and the apostles would be used as a foundation for the truth and a foundation for the church. And that foundation, part of that foundation is God's Word that controls everything we do. In fact, in Acts 2.42, as the early church is forming and and 4,000 and 6,000 come to Christ and and the church is just um, this amazing place to be, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And, and, and part of that is they recognize the authority of the apostles' teaching as the authority of Jesus Christ. The apostolic authority there was from the Lord. We can go on to, to a number of other verses that claim that and show that. But when, we, when, when the early church was looking at tests for what books should be, especially in the New Testament, are these tied to apostolic authority? Who wrote it? What authority did they have? That's that's exactly the first test. Ignatius, who lived just after the next generation, after the, the apostles, actually 50 to 115, so he probably overlaps some of them, says, I do not wish to command you as Peter and Paul. They were apostles. And so somehow that the early church recognized that the apostles had an authority granted and given to them by Jesus Christ. And Jesus passed those on through His Holy Spirit. Who is giving the command matters. And it needs to be someone with biblical authority, someone tasked by God with that authority. There was a story of a, a CNN news cameraman who um, needed to, to get on a story and he quickly used his cell phone, called a local airport, chartered a flight, and, and he needed to get to the story. And he was, he was told a twin-engine plane would be waiting for him at the airport. So great, he arrives at the airfield, spotted a plane warming up on the hangar, jumped in with his bag, slammed the door shut, and shouted, Let's go! So the pilot went. pilot taxied out, swung the plane off into the wind, and took off. Once in the air, the cameraman was talking to the pilot. Okay, fly over the valley, make low passes. I need to get some shots of the fires on the hillside. And the pilot says, Well, why? He says, Well, I'm a cameraman for CNN. He responded, I need to get some close-up shots. Pilot was a little silent for a moment, sort of strangely, and he finally stammered, So, so what you're telling me is you're not my flight instructor? (laughs) He mistook the authority of the man who got in the plane, followed the commands, but that person had no authority to be giving those commands of how to fly. I have no idea how the story ended. That would be interesting to know. (laughs) But authority matters. And in this case, he was blindly following someone. He thought of authority, but he didn't. Who wrote it matters. Who's giving the instruction matters. And so the early church was very, very careful to make sure the instruction was tied to the authority of God. There were all kinds of other works that I mentioned. There were works that, that claimed to be from some of the apostles and it was so so the the thing was and there was like 150 of these works and, and so many more the thing was if i'm writing something of the time maybe a little bit later some of these are dated 150 years later so like okay i'm pretty sure that wasn't peter um the way that you'd get credibility the way that you'd get readership is you'd claim that one of the apostles wrote it so i would write something at the end would say grace and peace to you from peter and so people would say, Peter wrote this. Well, as they've discovered, so any book that had a wrong claim of authorship was immediately thrown out because the person's lying already about the authorship, and so this can't be the true word of God. And so they kept looking at these things. Think about the New Testament for a minute and the credibility of the New Testament. Paul, who was an apostle, wrote 13 of the 27 books, right? Right? Of the four Gospels, two were written by apostles, Matthew and John. The other two had authors that were linked closely with apostles that worked with apostles. Mark to Peter, and then later to Paul, and then Luke to Paul, as we just studied, a companion of Paul. Acts was also written by Luke, a companion of Paul, and so had that authority. The two books of Peter were written by the apostle Peter. James and Jude, they were linked to the brothers of Jesus, they weren't apostles, but they were leaders and they, they were brought into near apostolic status as members of the Holy Family and, and knowing Jesus. And so they were brought into the early church as leaders and had the approval of the apostles. We're up to 22 books right there. The rest of John, the, John's literature, first, second, third John and Revelation, they were also linked to the apostle John. That's 26 books out of 27 that were directly linked to an apostle. The last one, Hebrews, was one of the most debated ones because we don't know the author. But looking at the writings of the early church, it looks like they did know the author. And somehow that has gotten less. And, they were, and, and that author was connected to the apostles. Some say oh, it might have been Paul. I think that's really doubtful. Um, I have my own theories of maybe who wrote it, but it was someone that was with the apostles and, and teaching with apostolic authority. But the New Testament all comes from credible sources that were accepted by the apostles. Second test. And that's the the longest one. The rest will go pretty quickly. Second test. Is it authentic from the time of the apostles? This is similar to number one, but is it authentic from the time of the apostles? This is making sure it wasn't a pseudonym. It wasn't someone just faking it. It's making sure that the dates of it match the time of the apostles if we have a text and, and the date that it was written is 500 AD, that's not apostolic authority. Too late. It's just way too late. And so that was one of their tests. And in fact, as they looked at the authenticity and the authorship and the dates, one of their, their sayings from their writings was, if in doubt, throw it out. And, and we're like, oh, yeah, okay, that's cute and everything. But doesn't that give confidence to make sure something ac- didn't accidentally get, get slipped in there? If in doubt, throw it out, because if there was doubt about the authorship, if there was doubt about the validity, then it was not considered part of the canon. You know, one of the ways that they tested the authenticity is, is there evidence that these were eyewitnesses? And this goes back to apostolic authority and did they walk with Jesus? But were there eyewitnesses? In 2 Peter 1.16, Peter's talking about what he wrote and he mentions this test for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made up, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there. We saw it. You know, we we for for some of the the tests of authenticity, we look at the manuscripts that we talked about last week. We we look at the dates, and and and, and here's the thing: there were some great works written at the time by other believers, and by the early church fathers. But they weren't Scripture. They were sort of like what we would look at a book from C.S. Lewis or Francis Chan, right? That, those aren't Scripture. And, and if you're reading some of those and thinking they're Scripture, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. But they're helpful works by godly men and women who will help us understand God's Word. And that's some of these other books, the, the category of them. And so is it authentic from the time of the Apostles? Number three, and and this one, the the longer I walk with God, the more important this one is to me. Did it come with the life-transforming power of God? Did it come with the life-transforming power of God? Does it reflect the work of the Holy Spirit? Does it reflect His his teachings? Does it reflect how He can change hearts? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If, if a particular book that the early church was considering didn't do that, if it wasn't transforming lives, if it wasn't piercing to the heart, then it probably wasn't Scripture. Because this says the Word of God is living and active. Now don't get me wrong. Individually, we can shut off God's Word. We can be callous to it. We can be hard to it. We could treat it just as a book of facts or we could treat it as a book of myths and not let it change us. And we can be resistant to the work of the Holy Spirit. But as a whole, what is the work in the church? Is it changing lives? As you read God's Word, I would bet almost every one of you have had an experience where you read a passage that you've read 10 other times and you're reading back through the Bible and reading it, and that passage on that day just is exactly what you needed to hear. And you're like, oh, wow, that stepped on some toes. Or, wow, that was so encouraging. That is the power of God's Word. Fourth test that they used is, was it accepted, collected, read, and used? So was it part of of the usage of the early church? Was it accepted by the people of God? Did the apostles and Jesus recognize it? And this is, this is some of what did it claim, but what did it claim about other scripture? And so we, we have, we have a lot of interesting verses here. Peter actually says in 2 Peter 3.16 that the works of Paul are scripture. Really hard to understand, but scripture. Uh, and, and so we have all these testimonies. Jesus, when it came to Luke twenty-four forty-four, he's talking to his disciples in the upper room and he declares the Old Testament scripture. He mentions about the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the three categories of Old Testament scripture. And he calls them scripture. He calls them the word of God. And quite frankly, if Jesus affirms the Old Testament, we probably don't have to go further to decide whether that's canon. I'm going to take the words of Jesus every time. But there's a whole lot of other... And, and and in your notes, if you look at the end of your notes, I have a whole list of verses for the Old Testament and a whole list of verses for the New Testament of places where in Scripture the other books of the Bible are affirmed as canon. I'd encourage you to read those verses this week. Study them and enjoy them. Because there's a lot of meat there that show... What was accepted? What was collected? What was read and used? Show what the early church apostles and fathers believed was scripture. And finally, number five, which someone, I think Kim, you mentioned, is it consistent or true? Is it consistent with the truth of God's word and is it true? Or does it teach different doctrines? if we suddenly find a scroll this week that teaches something radically different from repent and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved, it's probably not true. Uh, it isn't true. And so is it consistent or true with what Jesus taught, with the orthodoxy of Jesus? what Jesus thought? See, God can't contradict Himself. He never will. He will never lie. And so no book with a false claim, no book with a false doctrine is even possible to be God's Word. Numbers 23, 19, and this is the verse I encourage you to memorize this week, says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God will never lie. And so we look at the consistency of Scripture. We look at how it relates to, to other books and if it's true. Those are just five early tests they used. Again, those are helpful to know. Those are helpful to understand. And these were all used before 100 AD. Not 400 AD, not as, as the Da Vinci Code and others will state. So these are helpful in a conversation, but ultimately, how do we know there's power? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit superintended the writing of God's Word, the transmission of God's Word, and its work in our hearts. And our lives, and He left nothing to chance, and so we can be confident in God's word. We're about to go to communion, and and communion is a wonderful time that we have to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. The bread represents His body that was broken for us, that He willingly sacrificed on the cross. The juice represents His blood, and, and it represents the death we we deserved but that Jesus died for us to pay for our sins. It represents him offering forgiveness because he paid the penalty for our sins. But, but here's what I want us to, to focus on this morning in communion as we take it and we say we're remembering that word for remember isn't just bringing to mind but saying I will remember with my life with my actions with every part of my being what Christ has done for me and I will live in light of that and and the way that, with our topic this morning, one of the ways I think about that is living in light of, of of God's sacrifice, of Christ's sacrifice. Do I live according to the Word? If every book in here is God's Word, and it is, do I follow every book in here, or do I just like reading, you know, the, the Book of Luke because it has some nice stories about Jesus and I don't have to apply very much? Or do I take the whole Bible and apply it? See, as we take communion, we're saying. Jesus has affected every part of my life and every word in here is true and I will follow it to remember Jesus well. And so we come with confidence to God's word, but are we people of the word? Do we take the whole of God's word and apply it to life? So think about that as we remember Christ's sacrifice, what difference is it making in my daily life? Let's pray and thank God for his sacrifice. Lord God, thank you for your work on the cross. Thank you for your sacrifice so we could be saved. That if we repent of our sins, your death is applied in my place. And I can have a future of eternity with you, of loving you, of knowing you for all all time. Lord, I pray that we would be people of the word, people that our lives reflect the sacrifice you've given for us, that we live lives worthy of that sacrifice. Lord, help us to know you and and to follow you in everything we do. In your name, amen.